There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to another episode of the How I Quit Alcohol podcast. For first-time listeners, please be aware that not all of the conversations within this podcast are suitable for children. I'd also like to add a trigger warning that sometimes the conversations can get a little heavy. We may talk about things like sexual abuse, domestic violence, drug use and alcohol use. And if you feel that that may trigger you, please do not tune in. Also, I'd like to add, if you are a heavy daily drinker, please seek the help of a medical practitioner before quitting alcohol. This podcast comes to you from beautiful Bundjalung country. Please kick back and enjoy. Grab yourself your favorite alcohol-free bevy. And if you haven't already, do a gal a favor. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. This podcast is proudly brought to you by Monday Distillery. Monday Distillery is a new age beverage company revolutionising the way we look at having a night out with friends. They make sophisticated, non-alcoholic beverages that are sugar-free and full of social graces. Now you can enjoy a good time, love what you drink and love yourself the next day too. Stay high in spirits, keep a clear mind. Cheers to Monday. Are you sick of feeling controlled by alcohol? Do you want to drink less? Do you wake up on a Sunday morning feeling really anxious and full of regret? I'm Danny Carr and welcome to my podcast, How I Quit Alcohol. Hi and welcome back to How I Quit Alcohol. Today in the Zoom room, I'm joined by the wonderful Jack Nagel. He's the host of the wonderful podcast that I was on, gee, probably two years ago called Real Drug Talk. Yep. And he's a drug and alcohol counsellor. He runs his own outreach rehab programs. He's 32 years old. He's from Melbourne. I don't know if I mentioned that. And he's had his own humongous journey with drugs and alcohol. So I'm really stoked and excited to have Jack in on the podcast today to talk about his journey. Jack, how are you, mate? I'm good. I'm good. I'm actually really good. I'm in um, Melbourne. I get jealous seeing your stories all the time with the nice weather and beautiful beaches and it's freezing when I, where I am, but the sun's out today. So we're excited about that. That's awesome. <laughs> I'm actually flying to Melbourne on Friday with my daughter to go and see a theater show. What are we going to see? Moulin Rouge. And oh, nice. I'm very excited. She goes, is it going to be jumper weather? I'm like, yeah. She's like, 
awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I don't know. It's been up and down. We had a couple of really hot days recently and then it was like pissing with rain the next day and then, yeah, typical Melbourne stuff, you know. Melbourne four roll. seasons in one day. That's right. That's right. You get to wear all the clothes. That's right. I'm saying the sun's out and I'm still in a – I've got a jumper on, so that's probably an indication of what we consider good weather. <laughs> I love it. So, Jack, tell us a bit about you and your history. Where are you from and when did you start drinking? Yeah, okay. So I'm from the southeastern suburbs of um, Melbourne. Kind of the best and easiest way to explain it is typical like Aussie kid and came from a family like pretty middle class, like had everything I ever needed, maybe not everything I ever wanted, that kind of thing. Hated school, played footy and cricket the whole time. Broke my jaw when I was younger, started playing basketball. I'm six foot six, so it was kind of a natural fit and I loved like footy AFL, but I was better at basketball, so I kept playing that and kind of was like semi-professional in when I was growing up as a kid playing basketball, but I always had this thing around like missing out on my youth and having fun and things like that. So yeah, I, I started drinking. I was always like intrigued by like alcohol because it was kind of restricted. And uh, I think like the first time I got drunk was probably around like 13 or 14, I think. Yeah, roughly. Mm -hmm. Okay. What did it do for you that first drink? I got super sick, actually. Drugs are a big part of my story as well. I actually smoked marijuana before I drank. So wow. Where'd you get that from? Uh, so my mate's older brother, you know, typical story. It's like a movie. My mate's older brother, they were smoking bongs and all that kind of stuff. And my mates, yeah, were starting to experiment and things like that around 13 and 14. And they were at school, like, talking about it and all that kind of jazz. So naturally i can still remember we had so i played basketball literally like seven days a week and never really had any time off even on the weekends there was basketball happening and stuff and i enjoyed it and loved it but there was this big part of me that wanted to go out and chase girls and have fun like when you're 13 and then so anytime i got a break when i would go and drink or use substances i would just kind of do it to the extreme because I kind of felt like I didn't want to miss my opportunity. So yeah, it was Easter Monday, public holiday. We got the we got the pot, smoked at the skate park behind Chadston in uh, Melbourne, the big shopping center. And like, I was really nervous to do it at the start, but I had a blast. But the first time I drank alcohol, I fucking hated it because I got really sick. I remember I drank like half a bottle of vodka or something like that. And I felt shit, felt terrible, was throwing up all that good stuff. So yeah, the, my first experience with alcohol, I didn't like it. I didn't like it. Mm. But that's the interesting thing. It didn't stop me drinking alcoholically throughout the rest of my life, even though it probably wasn't my favorite thing to do. Yeah. 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 So it was almost like it was an escape from the pressure of the basketball as well, or was it I, purely I, just, this is my I, moment? I think so. So hindsight's a beautiful thing. It was probably, I call it a bit of a perfect storm. It was a mixture of a few things. So like I've learned now that I've got like some mental health issues and things like that as well. So I think that was at play at the time. And even though I had lots of stuff going for me, I always had this like weird thing going, like my self-esteem was shocking. Like I always wanted to be somebody else or somewhere else. I had no idea at the time. I was pretty anxious. I was pretty self-conscious, always 
like doing things to try and impress other people wanted to kind of be part of the cool crowd there was the pressure element of like basketball for sure and then also yeah just that just that longing of I really remember that as a kid at that age, like just feeling like I was missing out. So the main games for the representative basketball was on, on a Friday night, which is kind of like <laughs> when you go out and do stuff. So yeah, we would play and then I would sort of social media was just coming into vogue then. And yeah, we'd like see the posts on, I don't know if it was MySpace back then still. Oh or face, yeah, that's a throwback. Face, facebook or something whatever it was people just doing whatever so and i just remember feeling like i really missed out so i think it was the perfect storm of all of that stuff but the biggest thing that i remember that was present throughout all my time in that period was that when i did something it was never just like a couple of drinks (laughs) it was always like as many as i could until i was obliterated so i was definitely escaping something and there was Mm. definitely some stuff going on for sure yeah. yeah. Can I ask, you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, where do you think that low self-esteem came from and the anxiety? Like that's got to come from somewhere, right? Great question. So yeah, like come from a household and it's terrible. You shouldn't do this compare, but it's not like I grew up in like an absolutely terrible household, but like my parents split up when I was two and I can remember that I can always remember fighting like just yelling in the house and arguments and things like that there's parts of my family story that I don't share just out of respect for them but there was some other like not extreme things going on but some stuff going on with like family members I guess you could say like mental health as well and then you know my mom was in kind of lots of different relationships again like nothing bad but there was just always this like kind of uncertainty and change that was happening in my life when I was young and developing I suppose I think it came from there so I also have learned in later years only recently actually um, that I actually have bipolar as well so I think that is like a big reason as to maybe that was kind of going on around that uh, those early years I've been told still learning lots about it but it's sort of the onset can kind of come on around 13, 14, 15, where you start having episodes and stuff. And that's right where I started using alcohol and drugs in an extreme way. So So you were probably self-medicating something you weren't even aware of. A hundred percent. And now knowing what I know about, you know, I really believe in, and we, I remember we spoke about that when you came on, on my podcast, but I really believe in that whether you call it trauma or just like emotional dysregulation and wherever that falls on the scale, that was going on for me as well. And I definitely, when I look back at just all the like uncertainty that was happening in those early years of my life, like I was in a constant state of like stress and not being able to process and digest and just kind of come back to a state of equilibrium within myself and again like I just had you just have no idea about any of this stuff at the time (laughs) and you think about little Jack and his little nervous system must have been just shocking for his little nervous system that would have had to be on all the time when you don't feel safe like you said there was fighting in the house all the time and there was lack of stability there it's going to make your little nervous system on and just ready to go at all, all times A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And yeah, like it's not lost on me. I still find it amazing to this day around how like these unconscious psychological kind of belief systems and patterns play out through the rest of your life. It's no wonder that there was a lot of 
people in a way, not completely, you know, like I still had a relationship with my dad and whatever, but there was the break in the family unit. There was people coming in and out and you can see the link between me kind of trying to please people and keep people around and kind of being the chameleon so that people didn't leave me and all that sort of stuff. You, It's just, I find that fascinating about humans, how, what can kind of happen and occur in your developmental years and then the stories and belief systems that you tell yourself about yourself and that happen as a result of that. 100%. Yeah, absolutely. And with the work that I did with Gabor Mate, the study I did with him played such a huge role in my own healing, but also when I work with people to get to the core beliefs and those systems that were set up so young at such an early age. And people are often fascinated and light bulb moments when you can correlate something that's happening in the present, a trigger or an emotional response and how we tie that story back to its original source, which is oftentimes something that happened when we were little or the way we our nervous system got set up when we were little. Yeah. And that term complex trauma, CPTSD, you know, those complex traumas, how we continually as little people, maybe we didn't get our needs met or we continually didn't feel safe or that kind of how that just kept happening and happening and what little us made that mean about ourselves and, yeah, how that shows up. A hundred percent. It's And it's so interesting. And the same thing happens with me. Like, so there's always so many differences. And I don't know if you've experienced this as well. When I've worked with people and when I look at my own story, there's differences with everybody, of course, because we're all our own person. Everybody has a different story, but that's the one thing that is the same yeah. <laughs> uh, in everybody's story. There's some form of emotional dysregulation that happens yeah. and there's some form of like on whatever sliding scale there is of lack of self-worth and then that then playing out in all different kind of self-sabotaging and destructive ways in, in people's lives and and that tends to be the common denominator and i think it's really cool to see all that i learned that early on mm. just kind of became apparent to me and it's so cool to see people like gabo Marte getting like famous on social media and being able to articulate it so well and kind yes. of educate people and hopefully there's that just a bit more understanding from people all around as people are parenting or going on their own journeys or whatever Exactly right. And that's so cool too, that the more that people like Gabor surface and he he also says, like, I didn't invent this stuff. Like this comes from a bit of this and a bit of that. And he references yep. all sorts of people in his work, but it's great because he does articulate things very well. And he'll get on a podcast and talk about it and his great books and his own teachings. There's so many more resources out there now for people to understand. And we're more emotionally aware than we've probably ever been. It stops the self-blame, I think, and it helps us start getting curious right a hundred percent and but it's so interesting as well because like we're more and sorry we're just going deep here but i agree with you we're more we're becoming more educated around this whole like eq space and all of this Mm -hmm. stuff but then culturally as well we're like more disconnected than we've ever been as well through Right. I, I guess it's through the thing that's kind of helping to educate, I think, like which is like technology, but then it's also like fragmenting some of our like fundamental human systems of like connection and belonging and all that sort of stuff that people get from that face-to-face contact. Know. You know, it's so it's strange. Like you can't have yeah. one without the other, can you? It's Have you read Lost Connections by Johan Hari? 
No, I haven't. I haven't. Oh, but obviously, dude. I've seen the talk and you know all that stuff. I've got to read it. Yeah, great book. Yeah, fasc- fascinating stuff. And it's so on point. Absolutely, so on point. All right, we're digressing. So, okay, we've got little Jack. Obviously, very dysregulated. He's yeah. got a lot of pressure on himself, also to perform. Probably, but do you think that was to get some acknowledgement, attention? I think so. I, I think um I think that definitely was like an element of it because when I look back, like I definitely love sport and still do like, and I was, that's what I was always doing. But when I look back on it, like often I wish, I don't know if anybody else has this, but like with kind of the knowledge or maybe it's wisdom that you learn throughout your life, I wish that like I could kind of teleport now back to like a child with my brain in a way yeah. because like, hundred percent. I was better at basketball, but I loved football and I still love football. Like I'll watch football all day, every day and won't really turn on the basketball that much, but I was just better at basketball or I was taller. So yeah, there definitely was that parts kind of playing out where I was like seeking validation and yeah, trying to prove to myself that I was okay. <laughs> and yeah. Good enough, wow. You know? Yeah, yeah, it's so it's isn't it great though to be able to look back and, and see that how it plays out. A hundred percent. Okay. So tell me a bit about so you're getting into the pot, you're getting smashed as soon as you introduced to these things. How did it start to play out for you? How did it evolve as you got older? Yeah. So it progressed pretty quickly for me, unfortunately. <laughs> or fortunately, I don't know. But like as I said, that thing always happened where it was never one it was like a hundred that that's just the commonality throughout all my drinking and drug taking and I was always really nervous the first time I did anything but as soon as I did it I loved it right and I think it's kind of important to acknowledge that is that that's why people take drugs and alcohol is because there's like a a payoff often and at first to be honest for like first like year and a bit even though when I look back on it it was fucking crazy and extreme and out there I still to this day I had some of the best times of my life with substances doing that stuff and that was kind of the trap right so just it progressed from smoking pot and things and I guess you're just around people then I remember like 14 we went to the year eight formal or some shit or whatever I don't know why you have a formal in year eight but we did and people had like ecstasy and it was like all the in year eight yeah in year eight yeah like it's it's crazy I look at my son now that's two and I like I I look at him and I think like wow like there's only so many more years until he's like 13 and I just cannot imagine him or I look (laughs) at my nephews that are six and four or something and I just think wow a couple more years and then I was like doing drugs and doing all this stuff it's pretty it's pretty crazy so yeah so started taking ecstasy just started having a blast and then I guess like it started happening with other drugs after that that I guess people categorize as inverted commas harder drugs because I guess you go out and you take pills and stuff and then you have to like kind of come down and chill out after that so like you'd go back to people's houses and then the people's I guess maybe some of the people's houses that you're going back to there's stuff going on in their life like with their parents or whatever because you're 14 and allowed back there to smoke pot and drink and whatever and then there's different people through the house and there's different drugs that get presented and come up and it just kind of happened like that and yeah so that's the thing with alcohol that's really interesting so in the end I ended up 
as like an IV meth user and was using like lots of prescription pills as well and smoking a lot of pot and drinking alcohol. But Mm. that's the interesting thing. Like I was drinking a lot because I was doing meth. I never thought that alcohol was like a problem, (laughs) you know what I mean? And an issue. Mm -hmm. But if I look at like a lot of like how I was drinking and the health stuff, it was so bad. And that's just such a prohibitive thing for people to get help with alcohol. I think just because of like the cultural acceptability to go out and drink six to eight beers as a young guy is just considered like, oh, you're just having a night out when actually (laughs) it's quite a bit of alcohol to kind of consume. And when we were younger, we used to drink like goon. There was that whole thing about just because it was like 13 bucks and you just drink that. It was like rocket fuel. And then there was the whole thing that you'd laugh about, about like blowing it up and going to sleep on the bag. And just all that stuff was playing out. And I had no idea about how much of an issue it was for me. I'm so blown away by this. What were mum and dad doing? Like where was mum and dad when you were partying yeah. this way? Did they know? How were so, you getting away with it? So they definitely knew. So that's the thing. For the first couple of years, I was doing all of that and still playing basketball like crazy. And It was probably all good and a lot of fun for me until I got to like when I finished school at 18. So what happened was that I was partying like that and having fun, but still playing basketball. So slowly and slowly I was getting worse at basketball. And I guess the overall thing was that my attitude changed and my attitude started to shift and how I was like thinking, I always wanted to go and be a professional sportsman and that started to change and that started to shift. And I definitely think that that's due to like alcohol and drugs. So it changed my motivation levels around what I wanted to do with my life. But just to kind of give everybody an idea, it's embarrassing to say, cause I'm like 32 now, this is like when I was 17, but like sort of the intensity of basketball I was playing, like Andrew Gaze was my coach, who's like a prominent Australian basketball figure. We just went to a trip to the US and I was using a lot of these drugs. I wasn't completely like hooked on meth yet at that stage, but I was using a lot of drugs and I was just super naive. And I experienced my first detox when we went on that trip, when I was 17 on the plane, I just started fucking sweating, shaking, feeling nauseous and terrible. And I was on the plane and I just like had no idea that that was going to happen. And that that was because of the drugs and alcohol and all that stuff. And I felt pretty terrible like a lot of the time that we're in America and we're there for I think it was like a month or maybe it was longer playing like a tournament and stuff and then what happened was that when I came back I just decided that nah I'm quitting everything I didn't think I'm going to become like a drug addict although I don't like that term but I didn't think that I was just going to become a full-on drug user in my head I just wanted to go and party and like have fun without having the responsibilities. So I got home, quit everything, which was like a huge shock to everybody. And I went from being this like guy that was literally like getting up at five in the morning, going to basketball training, going to school, training at nighttime. That would happen all throughout the week, Monday to Thursday, playing on Friday, playing on Saturday, then training on Sunday. I went from that to nothing, but still with the drug and alcohol use that I had. And that's when it really went wrong and it really fucking went south. Hang on. So I'm under the impression that you're in America and you've gone through that detox, which I've got about a million questions to ask you about that. You've come back and thought, I'm going to quit everything. Yeah. So I've just missed something here. So, but then you said that you stopped everything 
Did you I, mean you quit everything in basketball, not drugs? Sorry, yeah, quit everything in terms of basketball and just oh. like my whole, what I was doing in my life, I was just going to quit all of that and just go and just have fun and just be a teenager. Oh. So I, I literally went from all this structure and playing at like a semi-professional level to nothing <laughs> with this whole like drug and alcohol habit that was going on in the background. And yeah, that's when it kind of blew up. But when I was in America, I didn't use anything and it was fucking hell. I remember it was hell. A, we couldn't get anything because we're just like with the team and you can't drink there until you're 21. So like it was hard to kind of fake alcohol, even though we were a couple of people that were 18 on the team. And we were really nervous to try and get drugs because if you get done with drugs in the States, like <laughs> it's bad, you get done well and truly properly. So, and, and we didn't really have the opportunity. So I remember like going through hell when I was in America for a month of like not using anything. And as soon as I got back, went ham, as they say. <laughs> oh my God. All right. I've got questions about that too. Did your coach know what was going on? Yeah. So Andrew Gaze was my coach at that time for two years, I think. And I used to come to training stoned, like, and I don't think anyone really knew until after the fact, because you know, I just banged the clear eyes in and just could function. Uh, yeah, I'd like rock up to training drunk sometimes, just down like the mints. Because I ended up at that stage, I went to this school down here in Melbourne, famous Sandringham College. Sandringham's a hoity-toity area, but Sandringham College is a sort of, it's not a community-based school, but it's close <laughs> and they have like periods and you don't have to rock up. So we just used to go to school to like use drugs and just like hang out and have fun. And that's kind of what we were doing and I didn't really go to school. So yeah, that's when I was like using and, and then I'd like go home at nighttime and go to basketball training. Yeah. <laughs> wow. 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 And there's this sort of, I'm thinking, well, wow, there's no discipline. There must've been discipline with the basketball. That was the only thing kind of holding me together in those years, I think, was that I had just such structure and routine with basketball mm. through all the training and stuff. And when that finished and ended, yeah, that's when things got real bad in my life. Yeah. Wow. And the other thing I'm thinking about this young guy who's getting really fucking shit-faced all the time and yeah. then got all this pressure on himself to perform and do basketball. And I'm feeling my chest go all tight because I feel like my heart's hurting for him. Yeah. How do you feel about that boy? Like when you yeah, look back and like, see, think about him. Really sad, really sad. I feel more just sad that really when I look back on it, all the drug stuff, that was kind of about finding belonging and connection as well. Because although we might not have spoken about it in, that, in those terms, um, like everybody there was kind of like me, low self-esteem, bit of a misfit in their own way all that kind of stuff. So, cause I never like, although I was like good at sport, I never like really connected with like, the sporty people. And then I never really like connected with the artistic people. And then I never really, like I just never really connected with anyone. But when I found the people who were using drugs and alcohol, I remember feeling like, yeah, these are my people. And they were because they were probably experiencing a lot of the same stuff. So I feel sad that I never had just that ability to be able to be seen and heard i guess by mm. someone and just didn't have again not to really any fault of anyone it's just kind of how it played out but yeah never really had that sort of like mentorship i guess you could say and guidance through those like confusing early years of of life <laughs> yeah it sounds like you were very lost 
Yeah, a hundred percent. You don't have to answer this question either, but did you feel like you belonged within your own family system? Uh, not really. No, no. Mm. Like when I got sober, I did a lot of media and stuff like mainstream media. And I think part of that was because I, it was kind of so shocking because I sort of, I had hair back then. I sort of looked like the boy next door, but then had this like whole kind of story. And that was this weird dynamic that I always had. I was always like the good, like very brought up well, polite manners, not really rebelling openly that people knew about. I was super secretive, hiding things. Like the first time I ever got caught was that, and my parents had any idea that there was something going wrong was when I was 15 or 16, our mates used to like push their parents' car out at nighttime when they go to sleep and we used to go joyriding. We used to take all these no-dos and go joyriding around and like throw eggs at things and all this kind of stuff. Somebody did an armed robbery at the McDonald's. It wasn't us. And we were driving around in my mates. They had a Tarago, which was like one of those big family wagon things. And then the, I remember the cops drove past us and they just like looked in the car and there was like <laughs> 10 fucking kids <laughs> in the oh, car no. with like my mate driving along and they pulled us out and we got, we got obviously caught for underage driving, being out and whatever. I, I wasn't driving, but I remember my mum going, what the fuck? Like what the actual fuck? <laughs> I've never, Jack, like how could you do this? Like I just, there was just... And that's just to kind of paint the picture of what I was like, how I presented as just this like pretty kind of perfect child really, but had all this stuff going on in the background. You know? Yeah. So often the way is, and I know within my own family structure, there was a family member who we found out was on ice, but he was just like, so not, did not fit the bill at all. Yep. Like really yep. accomplished footy player and very good looking and just everyone's favorite. And it was just like, whoa, didn't see that one coming. Yeah. It was a real yeah. shock. Whereas hundred percent. Yeah. 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 But then other family members that didn't fit that bill and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I get that. But when it's, it's such a shock when it's someone else, but everyone's just hurting, aren't they? Whether it's they fit the bill or not, there's something going on. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Wow. Did you have siblings? Yes. So I've got one younger brother and that was when you asked me before, like what was happening, what was going on when things started to get really bad and I started to be using speed and ice daily and running a habit with that. And like everything kind of came along with that. Like my life was fucking, I was just like out of control. That's when my mom sort of she kicked me out of the house because my brother's uh, eight years younger than me. Yeah. Eight years younger than me. So when I was 18, he was eight and it just like, not that I was doing, well, I was stealing everyone's shit, but other than that, I wasn't like hitting anyone or doing anything crazy like that, but it just wasn't safe to like have me in the house. So she asked me to leave. And, and again, like that was what helped me to actually stop. Ironically, I, I don't advocate that people kick people out of the house, by the way. I think <laughs> when you're housed, you have a lot better chance of getting sober than you do if you're not housed. But I guess the consequences of my like addiction, it wasn't so much the drug use that I wanted to stop. I wanted all the bad shit that was happening in my life to stop. You know, I wanted to stop wanting to kill myself. I wanted to stop having a couch surf around on people's houses. I wanted money in my pocket. I wanted to like put some weight on like all that stuff. It wasn't about not using drugs per se. And I think that's the, 
interesting dynamic with any kind of substance from people that I talk to. It's kind of wanting something to be different in their life and making the connection and realizing that on whatever scale it might be, I'm aware that I was kind of at like the 1% super pointy end of things, but on whatever scale it is, realizing that alcohol or substances is at sort of the root of what's causing the issues or feeding those problems. Yeah, Yeah, that's so true. So on point. I remember Lyndall, one of my good friends, she's been on podcast heaps and she couldn't even go a couple of hours without drinking in the end. She's a bad addict. And she said exactly kind of what you said. She's like, I didn't want to stop drinking, but I wanted the chaos to stop. Yes. Just wanted the chaos to stop. At least that was a start. I mean, she had to do a lot, lot more unpacking eventually in a couple of relapses, but at least that was kind of, okay, one step in the right direction, just realizing I want this to stop. A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. So I was really shocked then. I realized the disconnect within myself that when you said, when you go back from America, you wanted to stop everything. And I'm assuming that that was the drugs and the alcohol, but oh no, it was the thing that was keeping you together. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> what the fuck, Jack? <laughs> I know. That's so I know. Wise. It just speaks to how much substances alter your thinking and your personality and your attitude. And that was the thing that was really, when I look back on my story, that was really present. Not that even when I stopped, I didn't really regret, oh shit, I wish I had have not done this and chased a professional career or whatever but i definitely before i started using drugs and alcohol that's all i wanted to do was be a professional sportsman like that was kind of my dream in life and to think that by using something it can just dramatically change that i guess what i'm saying is i don't think i would have come to that point without drugs and alcohol altering the way that i thought about myself and the rest of the world yeah yeah, absolutely. So, and as you say, that was kind of your anchor. So yeah. I can't imagine that the shit show that came after losing that. Yeah, that's right. It was bad. So I guess just to paint the picture for everyone at the end of what I was like. So randomly, and it still mates to this day, you just sort of, I started moving away from my mates that were smoking pot and doing like, I guess, quotation marks for anyone that's not watching party drugs. I moved away from them and into people that were using drugs kind of the way that I wanted to use drugs, I suppose. We were doing them all the time in all different ways and whatever. And randomly, I had a lot of mates that were heroin addicts that were kind of in our group. And that's sort of how I got introduced to using IV. And I remember that's kind of what happens. Like the more time that you just spend around something, it just becomes normal and you just get used to it because people always ask me that like how could you get to that point and it's just like slowly like conditioning and the more time that you spend around it the more it just becomes a part of you and it becomes normal and it doesn't seem that strange and that's sort of what happened to me and by the way for everyone listening i think that's something that you can use if you're trying to change a habit and behavior in your life as well the more time that you spend around something the more time it'll become normal and less uncomfortable and yeah, I, I just, I remember the first time I won't get too graphic for people, but the first time I, yeah, hit up ice instead of smoking it, it was like 20 times better. And actually I remember, cause it's kind of an ironic, funny story again. So I'm from the Southeast suburbs of Melbourne. They're probably got some of the most affluent suburbs in the whole of Melbourne along that. It's kind of along the Port Phillip Bay area there. 
But then there's like sprinkles of suburbs that aren't so good where there's socioeconomic problems and stuff like that. So it was kind of like this melting pot of like people that were hanging around with. So a lot of my mates that I was using drugs crazily with were from this place called Brighton in Melbourne, which is where all the like $10 million houses are and stuff like that. (laughs) And yeah, so we were sitting in Dendy Park in Brighton, this really like affluence area I'd stolen a bunch of money and I had seven grams of meth down my Dax and we just had a shot and it was the first time I'd had a shot. So I cannot describe to you what it's like. I was like on another planet. I was flying, absolutely flying. And these fucking detectives, because we're smoking weed as well, pull up right behind us and I was off my head and my mate was a heroin addict. He had needles all over his car. And so obviously they, they searched us and whatever and I was so lucky. They didn't pat me down or anything like that and they didn't find it. But yeah, like that that's just kind of an insight into what life was like. It was just like that, like just chaos, just craziness up and down to a point where I got to in the end where I was using IV. I was regularly going into psychosis and like genuine psychosis where I couldn't remember anything and doing from what I was told, like really weird shit. I was starting to get like the paranoia and stuff was really bad. So I remember like I'd be walking down the street to the train station or something. And like, I started to have that thing where I'd think that people walking on the street were like talking about me and things like that. That stuff was starting to come in. I'd had a couple of suicide attempts because I guess like, what comes up must come down. So you're up so high and then the depression and lows were so low. And I obviously have been brought up in a pretty good way. So I knew that everything I was doing was wrong and terrible and all that sort of stuff. So I still, when I think about that, I get, I feel really sad. Like it was just a really fucking sad couple of years in my life that I was just completely out of control, just trying to be numb the whole time. <laughs> oh. That's just, oh, oh, God, kills me. And you're just wanting to be numb this whole time. And then I guess you just keep it on going, keep it on going because That's right. when you sober up, the pain's probably so much worse than it was in the first place. I was just about to say that. It was worse not like the, And I think that's the thing for people to understand. It's kind of how I think about it. It was like I just needed a different solution and I just didn't, I was trying to solve a problem. I didn't know that at the time, but I was trying to solve a problem within myself and it was worse when I wasn't high and wasn't drinking and wasn't taking other drugs than it was when I was like, if we were, if we're on and we had shit, life was good. (laughs) But if we didn't, it was, it was miserable. And a lot of the time, ironically, we didn't because, you know, don't have money and fucking all that shit. Yeah, yeah. And then, oh, gosh, even having to get to the point where you're stealing to support this habit to stay numb. Yeah. Wow. 100%. So, yeah. How does that feel? Oh, it's it's crazy. It feels surreal. It feels like when I say it out loud now, it's like 13 years down the track, I think, 12, 13 years. When I say it now, it seems crazy seems crazy seems like somebody else's life it seems like a movie like it really seems like that but particularly with alcohol in that time that's actually when i drank the most because we often didn't have money for what i wanted (laughs) so we would steal alcohol right and we would just be like drinking bottles of alcohol and, and drunk a lot of the time so it is interesting like i actually 
didn't again didn't consider it at the time but when i look back i was drinking in a very alcoholic way all the time just out of kind of <laughs> some level of like necessity i suppose yeah yeah it's well it's medicinal at that point too isn't it that's right that's yeah, right yeah yeah and just to feel normal and i don't know if you said this earlier or before we were recording but when you've got that level of drug use to that level of alcohol consumption doesn't even seem like anything, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. It, it just seemed like if you had said to me at that point that I could have felt okay drinking that much and not doing everything else, I would have said, yeah, tell me how. Because I just, yeah, I just really didn't think about it as an issue at all. <laughs> what got you to where you decided that you were going to stop? So through that time, I didn't want to be doing what I was doing. That's the worst part about it for probably that whole time. So there was probably about three years where I would actually be trying to stop. Friends would be trying to stop. Friends would be going to detox. I never went to detox, but called a couple of like services and had like some youth workers and outreach workers make contact with me and all this kind of stuff. And Can I just ask a question, Jack? Sure, sure. When you said friends were going into, the, into detox, did that... Yeah get your mind thinking a hundred percent yeah great great so so i really believe in particularly with drugs and i just think about alcohol as a drug but i really believe in high minimization because in a lot of ways that saved a lot of my friends lives and helped and actually helped me along the journey of getting better so i don't know if they do this anymore maybe not or maybe they do we're pretty out there sort of young people but how I got on to thinking about getting help, I remember the first time was my mate came around to my other mate's house where we were sitting around doing whatever and he had a bong with him. He had a new bong, right? And we were like, because we were smoking out of Gatorade bottles and shit like that. And we were like, oh, fucking awesome. Where did you get this? Like, how did you get this? Because no one would spend money on that stuff. And he was like, I've got this drug and alcohol worker and she fucking comes and picks me up and takes me to Macca's and she bought me this bong. <laughs> and we're like, what? what? <laughs> we just couldn't believe it. And that was like, and so we then started going out and getting drug and alcohol workers ourselves because we wanted to like get some food and like talk to someone. And, and I, so I really believe in that. And that's all come from harm minimization because what that woman would have been doing was, I know it sounds crazy to people, but she would have been buying him a bong to stop us smoking out of dirty like plastic and fucking hoses and getting sick and shit like that. So, and that's kind of set off the path of, of getting help. And then, yeah, my mates go on a detox and we would like talk about it a little bit. There would also be some unhealthy stuff about like why you go on a detox or whatever, like you're not that bad or, <laughs> and that was the other thing out of my friends, I wasn't the worst. I was not even close to the worst. So, that was the other thing that kind of fucked with me. I remember when I went and eventually went to rehab and it was the time that changed. I didn't really think that I needed to go. <laughs> I know this sounds crazy from the story that I've just told, but again, like comparatively to my mates who we thought the ones that were using heroin were like really bad and were fucked up and needed to go. I didn't think I was that bad. So I had that journey where I was getting help, didn't want to be doing what I was doing. What happened in the end was that, I'm 6'6", six, six, but I'm like a big teddy bear. I'm not tough at all. And I had stolen seven grand off a drug dealer. Ooh, um, not smart, and I, Jack. And I, was, and I was tripping out, but 
also that would be like me winning like a million dollars on the lotto now that was like a lot of money for me back then and i spent it all on drugs in a how week did you, how did you steal it like how so i used to go and score there and i knew where it was and i like arranged to like pick something up and i like jumped in the window and like got it before and like jumped out and then went and had it down my dax and then went and got yeah it was crazy so wow yeah so that happened and then so i spent all of that money in like a week and completely lost my mind all this crazy shit happened and what happened to me was that i remember i had a at that point in time, it's really sad to look back on it. I know it sounds like I'm over-dramatizing it, but I'm really not. It's like what it was like. Mm. I had this one Ralph Lauren jacket that, I don't know why, we used to wear Ralph Lauren, ironically, that was like, would flip in inside, like it was a two-way jacket. I had a pair of shorts and I had these shoes that had like little holes in them and I was skinny, I was 64 kilos and at the end of that, bender i remember walking down my mate dropped me at the station i remember walking down and i was fucking cold as shit i was so cold and i was so depressed and i went into the milk bar to buy a big m and i didn't even have enough for the big m and i'm i don't know what it was about that but i was just like fuck you just spent like you just had all this money all this stuff and it just something about that just broke me i 1-800 mum dadded my mum and asked if i could come home she grunted at me and said yeah because at that point i wasn't allowed at the house we'd had all this kind of crazy shit that had happened and came home she, i remember she let me in the door i went into her bathroom to like wash myself off she had this big mirror in the bathroom and i remember this is literally what happened again sounds like a movie i looked at myself and i had this moment where like my life like kind of like flashed before my eyes and i just kind of saw myself from going from this happy-go-lucky young guy that had the world at his feet to just like your stereotypical drug user that was fucked and in that moment it just kind of broke me and i went out and i said to mum, hey i want to go to rehab again so lucky that i come from a good family where there was like good support there and could navigate she'd taken out private health insurance i still fell under it because i was just under 21 and then we went to like the private rehab interview and i got accepted in and i was able to go there but i had to wait a week before i got in and yeah i remember in that week i started to flip flop and and think like oh no i don't want to go i don't want to go and it was like this whole thing and they managed to get me to go and the thing that changed my life, and it's kind of the whole reason why I do what I do now with talking about the story out loud and working with people and all that sort of stuff, was that there was this guy at the rehab who was a bit like us, right? He had a lived experience. He was a counselor as well, but he had a lived experience. Completely different story to me. He, he was just purely drank alcohol and again was from Turak, which is this other hoity-toity place. And he said to me told me a bit of his story but he intimately explained to me how he was thinking and feeling and i'd never heard anybody talk like that in my life i was like wow you're like in my head it still makes me like get a little bit emotional like thinking about it now because i just remember it. it was like holy shit like it blew me away and there was something about that that just 
opened up the window for me to kind of trust that maybe that it could work for me or whatever. And that was enough to kind of make me, because it was a 12-step rehab, which I found fucking weird, to be honest. When I like was 21, I was fucking tripped out. Yeah, it made me do things that I wouldn't have done otherwise because I just sort of had that connection point with him and trusted that like maybe he does, like maybe this can work for me too because, yeah. you know, he was able to reach me in some way that someone else hadn't. So, so yeah, did you that's recognize, kind of how it happened. Yeah, that's incredible. Did you recognise a part of yourself in him when he said how he was thinking and feeling? A hundred percent, yep, mm-hmm. yep. I, I remember distinctly thinking there's other people that feel like I feel and think like I think. That's I remember, I can still remember sitting in the office thinking that to this day. And I was like, wow, like, and it blew me away. <laughs> wow. Um, That's why yeah. sharing our story is so important. A hundred percent. And being 100%. authentic and honest and not being a dick about it and thinking. Uh, yeah. And I say to people, like, I totally understand, like, that maybe it's not for everyone to to share their story for whatever reasons. But if you do, it's one of the coolest things that you can do because can go and work on charity wells in in africa lots of people can donate blood lots of people can do different stuff but there's only a select kind of group of people that can reach other people that are suffering from this kind of thing and in my experience pretty much everybody that i've spoken to pretty much everybody at some point in their journey there's been someone with another like lived experience that's helped them along the way so it's just such a powerful thing that if you are in a space where you can do it you can help someone yeah. 100%. And like you said earlier, we've all got some similarity. Like even when we're working with people, we identify something about them in ourselves. And 100%. yeah, we all have so much in common, which is gives us a sense of we're not alone too. Like it's great. Can I ask you what he said that he was thinking and feeling that resonated with you so much? Because this might help people listening. He said things to me like, do you feel like lost and confused? Do you feel like people don't like you? Do you often feel like you're trying to impress other people to get them to like you. So he said a lot of stuff around that. He talked to me a lot about just kind of like the process of addiction and how it played out because that was the other thing. I I didn't want to be doing what I was doing, but I just like couldn't stop myself. It was fucking weird. And he kind of explained that stuff around like obsession and compulsion and then how like when it starts, this is how you think. And then after you do it, you like, regret it and all these kind of things when you're sitting around with your mates everybody's going through that but you don't you don't talk about that stuff so yeah that was some of the things that he kind of spoke to me about and and talked to me about that just sort of just hit me like differently and I was like wow it's unbelievable yeah what was it like then in rehab so you've you've had a glimmer of hope and that's what's really important so there's that connection there's that similarity and then there's that glimmer of hope that perhaps this could work for me yeah it was really hard. Look, this is like a whole, it's like a whole nother podcast to explain. I was just the thinking whole rec- we could split this up into a whole series. <laughs> Cause I've been doing inverted commas like recovery for 13 years now. And there's a lot that goes on and changes and happens in that time. And there's different phases or there's been different, I'll, I'll talk about me. There's been different phases for me and different parts of my identity that have shifted through recovery and through just naturally from going to 21 and kind of growing into like a full grown man and adult going from a boy into a man kind of thing. So it's been a lot to change, but I remember it was really confronting 
if I hadn't have had that conversation and hadn't have believed that guy, I wouldn't have stayed because I nearly did leave a couple of times. I had a really bad detox in the sense of not physical, the mental detox. I thought everybody was talking about me. I went fucking pretty crazy for like a week, Mm -hmm. really struggled, really wanted to leave, but didn't. I stayed. There was just something after that conversation inside of me that just knew that, you know, when you just have that weird thing that happens inside of you, when you just know that you need to do something, it was like that. And I just stayed. And after that week, I started to improve. I really struggled with the 12-step thing to start with. And then I went to this meeting and there was a guy that was like 22 years sober and clean or whatever. And they kind of celebrate people's birthdays at 12-step meetings and like their sober, sober birthday. So he was 22 years sober and, the, and there was a cake and there was all his mates there and they were all speaking throughout the meeting and telling stories of this 20 years that they had that was sober. And the guy that was sober was a fucking doctor, right? And I remember thinking, what the fuck? Like, cause I'd only, I'd never met a doctor that used drugs and he used to hit up um, like pethidine <laughs> in between patients and stuff. So mm-hmm. I just thought, and, and there was characters and it was, and it was just this whole, like there was a lot of love in the room and it was fed into this whole thing that I wanted, which was again, just this connection, this sense of belonging, this friendship, people to like me, all this kind of stuff. And after that meeting, I just decided that maybe, maybe it could work for me and that I'll just put aside the troubles that I have with like the high power stuff, not being able to drink and all that stuff. And I'll give it a go for 12 months. I'll see how I go. And I did. And it fucking worked. <laughs> yeah. So wow. and, and the rest is kind of history. <laughs> oh, oh, that's so awesome. Did you do the steps? Did you actively do the 12 steps? I did. So it's so, mm-hmm. it's so funny, right? I, um, Again, I've had lots of changes. So I don't go to 12-step meetings anymore. It changed my life, definitely. I kind of almost went from like struggling with it to becoming like my whole identity. What's the word? Like is it evangelical about the whole thing? And then I say it like this. I did the whole like 12 steps and stuff like that. What happened to me was that I told my story in like media and things like that. And as a result of that, I started getting invited into government boards and groups and all this kind of stuff and met some of Australia's like leading researchers and all this stuff and started reading research papers and started to read different things about trauma and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And it sort of shifted my perception and kind of confirmed some of the suspicions that I had about that whole 12-step process at the start and some of the things that I agreed with and didn't agree with and things like that. So did that for like five to six years and then stopped going to meetings and kept doing like work on myself in other areas and in other ways and stuff like that. But as I said, it's like so interesting to kind of talk to people about their journey of recovery and just what they've kind of been through in that whole process because, again, this is not like 12 steps that saved my life, but it got to a point for me where – I got to a point in my life where everything had changed and it was actually holding me back in a lot of ways I felt, not because of anyone else, but because of what I was doing. And then it's been really cool to have some changes and shifts in other areas of my life and to address some trauma and stuff like that, which has been groundbreaking for me to make huge changes. So, yeah. Yeah, so fantastic. Well done and well done to you. It's interesting. I 
oftentimes if someone will email me, I actually had one yesterday, someone saying, what can I do? I'm a huge drinker, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, why don't you reach out to a local AA group yeah. and see how that goes, give you some connection. And most of the time people come, nah, not for me. Lyndall, who's been on my podcast, who's she's right into AA. She lives and breathes it pretty much, but it saved her life. Mm-hmm. And she embraced the steps and she had a massive transformation yeah. And she continues to transform herself. She's incredible. And yeah. she studies counseling and trauma and all those things as well. But she always says too, sometimes if you have resistance to something, that could be the part of you that wants to keep you unwell. And 100%. Yeah. And I, I think I don't have any problem with AA. I've never done it, but I, I've just hear so many stories after stories that people had huge transformations and they felt accepted unconditionally. And I feel like that's all what you said earlier about the harm minimization, also that love of your mum. And this is in AA too, this unconditional welcoming. And and just as you are, like, if you're going to turn up, I'll go and buy you a fucking bong as long as it's clean. That's really important too. Yeah. So there's still, and like, I find it really hard to talk about because the 12 step community is a passionate community. And I really don't want anyone to feel like I'm speaking badly about it because I'm not because I still tell people that I work with to go right because I think it's so important and they're some of the huge like benefits out of it is that there's no other community as big as that on the planet that has that unconditional love acceptance and will just allow you to come in there and eat the biscuits if you're fucking off your face and sit in the meeting and someone will make you a cup of tea and like it's beautiful it's absolutely beautiful and I still use a lot of the stuff that I learned in my life every day is still to this day. And it helped me to find my spiritual side, all that stuff. It's super interesting. Yeah, super interesting. Yeah, absolutely. What's one of the steps that you found most beneficial to you? I found probably, I think a lot of people would say nine because that's when you go and you make amends to people and, and that was huge for me. But I actually found six and seven really helpful for me. Because it's when I started to become a different person and six and seven, I can't remember. I don't like the wording, but it's about your defects of character and your, sh- and your shortcomings yeah. and identifying them. And essentially kind of what you're doing, I don't know if it describes it like this. I can't remember now, but you're essentially finding out some of those negative belief patterns and you're looking at that whole process of how it plays out in your life. And then you're actively coming up with like the opposite thing that you can do to Mm -hmm. counteract those shortcomings that you don't like about yourself and the behaviors that are causing self-sabotage in your life and all that sort of stuff. So they're the ones that I found the most powerful because it actually changed my life because I changed things about myself and my personality. Right. And it's one of the sayings I love. And I tell people that all the time, like, don't worry about doing the right or the wrong thing. You just got to change. You just got to change something because if you don't change something, nothing changes. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. That's so true. Yeah. But that self inventory is so important and looking at your character 100%. defects. Some people might hear that and think, "Oh no, that's scary." But I do it on a daily basis as much as I can. Pen and paper out. No, yep. it's more noticing my patterns and my defense mechanisms my behaviors that show up, what I do, and never with self-criticism, yep. but more, okay, what was this all about? Was there fear behind it? What was the fear? Where did the fear come from? And really digging deep into that stuff. We've been doing it with my current challenge group and the grads the other night. We've just been 
journaling and doing some work on yeah those defense mechanisms and that could be seen as a character defect a hundred percent you could look at it as a defense mechanism or a protector but just understanding them because when we bring that subconscious behavior to the fore to the conscious we they're not driven by them we can understand them more and have also compassion for ourselves to understand where say, they come yeah. from yeah a hundred percent and so that's the part that i found that wasn't helping me anymore was identifying myself as an addict or an alcoholic and thinking about myself from that identity framework. And because I didn't realize what I was doing, and this is just my experience and my journey, but I felt like I was keeping myself stuck because I was identifying with that broken person that I was when I first came in and I wasn't that person anymore. And I had changed and I was completely different. And yeah. yeah, just for me, it was really important to kind of find a new identity for myself through changing my habits and behaviors and mm. those unconscious belief systems. But you said it like the biggest thing overall was, yeah, finding that self-compassion and coming from that space, which I still got to work on to this day. <laughs> yeah, know? I think that's the continual work that we do, right? Just yeah. But to be able to look at ourselves honestly with compassion changes everything. So I'm noticing things all the time. Like I'm like, oh, fuck, Danny, that was just a bit rough. Or the, if I'm over the top with my daughter or if I've been a bit yeah. to ash or just anything that shows up. But if I can get pen and paper out and use it as an opportunity to understand what's yeah. going on, where it came from, perhaps something yeah. recently showed up where I was like, well, where did that come from? Was that something I learned? Was that an imprint? What was that all about? And I saw that it was a pattern that I'd picked up from childhood. So sorry, I know I'm on your podcast, but I'm just interested and intrigued because I Go genuinely ahead. am with people. But so because I got introduced to like all this self-development stuff through 12 Steps, that's how I kind of started my self-development journey. Like how did you discover all that stuff? Because that's the stuff, right, that I talk to people about as well and anybody that I think that kind of, is working with someone on the right things is talking about to them as well. But how did you actually discover that stuff if you didn't go to like 12 steps? Great question. Well, it's funny. I was talking to my group this morning. When I very first started, I didn't have a coach. I didn't have a, anything. I didn't have any framework to go by. Yeah. But I did have a coach in that I was right into Tony Robbins, right? Right. Yeah. And he just gave me the, that gave me the foot up the bum that I needed. So I listened to lots of him. And then I got into Wayne Dyer, which came through listening to Oprah. Wayne Dyer was like my spiritual coach. Yep. And then I started, so I just got really curious about that self-help stuff. Yep. And then Louise Hay, she wrote a book called You Can Heal Your Life. Yep. And I would start using that and that's what I'd start doing. So that was not the deep, deep emotional stuff. That was more surface level stuff. Yeah, I don't think I would have been ready to do the deep. Well, maybe I wasn't, well, I might've been ready, but I didn't have someone there to coach me through it, so to speak, or yeah. a th therapist. I wasn't working with a therapist. And you kind of need, you kind of need a foundation as well to yeah. you know, to fall, fall back on. I think when, so when too. When it happens. Yeah. Yeah. And then look, all the rest of the stuff, just as I've continued on my own journey and I've done lots of courses, I've got this sort of course addiction where I'm just constantly learning and then if I learn something in a course that rings true for me, then obviously I'll use it in my own courses, but just staying inquisitive, staying open. And also Jack, I think it's really important to never think we're at the end game or we've learned enough. 
Correct. Yeah. I, I don't think that's ever the case. Like we can never learn enough. Just keep learning, stay curious, however that comes about. So and then I started listening to, I read a lot of spiritual texts. Yeah. I read shitloads of that sort of stuff. And I guess I just get practices from that. Or I listen to Michael Singer talking on a podcast. And I think, oh shit, that was good. And I'll yeah. apply that to myself. And yeah, that, does no, that answer the question? A hundred percent. Love it. Mm -hmm. And because that's what I've like come to learn for me is that the addiction for me was just a manifestation of what was going on underneath mm -hmm. the surface and totally. for anybody listening out there you might not even have to do something specific to start to get you started specific to addiction you can just as you said you can find answers through like different self-help techniques and things like that because mm. that's actually some of the deeper things that you're working on <laughs> without I, without yeah. realizing it <laughs> there's so and there's so many great books out there i tell you a great one we did in the grads book club it's nicola Perez's book how to do the work yep brilliant Byron Katie, her four questions around, is it true? 100% know it's true. She's what good. am I when I believe the thought? What am I without the thought? I use that in my course yeah. all the time. It's, a, it's fucking awesome. And I use it in my daily life all the time if I get triggered. So yeah, yeah. I mean, you got to walk your talk too, right? So you got to put right. stuff into practice and you learn so much. So just keep curious podcast listen learn yeah. that helps and so it's just an, an evolutionary it's an ongoing thing yeah yeah so yeah. interesting so interesting yeah. very cool and also i think the alcohol is always just a symptom of much deeper stuff that's going on or the addiction is always a symptom of what's going on um, underneath the surface so alcohol a lot of people say this when they do my course they'll say shit Alcohol was only a very small component of that, Correct. wasn't it? And I'm like, yeah. yes, that's right. It's always about the deeper work. So you've moved on, I guess, from the 12-step thing, which saved your life. Incredible. Yeah. Then you started to educate yourself more and more. And as you educate yourself more, that's where you'd have the big changes, would you say? Correct. So when I started doing some of that emotional regulation stuff with like a coach and therapist and things like that, it was crazy. Like I... I still struggle to articulate. That's why I love people like, as we we're talking about Gabor and people like that, because they're able to articulate the thing so well. But mm -hmm. it's kind of like I did some of the work, and it's not like I had a light bulb moment or anything in that process. But the coming days after that, just the kind of embodiment of my self acceptance and compassion yeah. to myself had changed and shifted to a yeah. noticeable degree when things yeah. would happen that I would usually say, what the fuck are you doing? Or you're an idiot or whatever stuff like that went away. And yeah, yeah that was so powerful because then it allowed me just to be more present in the moment connected to myself and everybody else. Yeah. And for me, that's like really where the magic was. And I've yes. seen through, through some of the government work that I've done, and actually in a lot of, I hate describing them like this, but that's what, how they describe them, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander models of care that they write up, which is just essentially like a process in treatment. There's these interesting models where people come to services and they don't even focus on alcohol and drugs. They just start working from like the trauma and they go up like that and they get these yeah. uh, bottom to up, sorry, rather yeah. than like top down. And they get these really interesting results with people where naturally alcohol and drug use just starts to kind of transcend itself a little bit because they're kind of working on that deeper stuff. So yeah, that's, that's what I found is really like powerful for me. 
That's not a recommendation to anyone, by the way. It's just interesting the process of healing that has been kind of discovered. That 100%. I've discovered. Yeah, that's yeah. great. And as you say, like as you work on the deeper stuff, everything else generally falls away. Even if it takes years, it doesn't matter. Yeah. But just start working on yourself is probably a good start. Sometimes you might need the coping mechanism to get through until you're ready to yep. get rid of it as well. So I totally get it. Sometimes it's been a necessity for people to get themselves to where they are to survive. Yeah. The other thing is working with a pen and paper is very powerful. Huge. I find like just even something bugged me yesterday really bad and it was not really about what the person did. It was more about what it hit in me, which is always the thing, right? It's never about the person. It's what it hits in you. And took a bit of time to process that. I had the initial reaction, which is always my defense mechanism, which is anger. Which I didn't let that take over too much because I have awareness. Five or six pages with a pen and paper after I've dulled it all down, just through breathing and being present, I just keep asking myself, what is this teaching me? What is this trying to show me? What yeah. am I learning from this? And fucking hell, Jack, you just... I'll write a bit and then I'll go off on a tangent and then I'll ask the question again, but what is this teaching me? What is this trying to show me? And whoa, you just have fucking amazing insights. And it kind of goes from, cause I remember when I started doing some of this stuff, it felt hard and it felt like a chore and it kind of felt like homework. And now I can't wait to do it because I know like yeah. what's on the other side and the benefits that kind of come from it, like you're describing. And it's funny how it shifts like that and changes. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so you went on to become a drug and alcohol counselor, which is freaking awesome. Yeah. And so obviously, and this happens a lot, right? We go into recovery or we, we realize how good it is and we want other people, but we want to understand it more. So we study and, and whatnot. And that's so great. I that's could cool. talk to you, by the way, we could probably do a mini series because I just feel like we could just talk to you forever. Well, and I'm I imagine you, the people you work with feel like that too. You've got something special about you, which is very open and honest and real. And I think that's super important. It's amazing. So tell us also about your outreach rehab program. Like, fuck. Yeah. So essentially, so connection-based living, it's called the best, shortest way to describe it is it's like going to rehab without actually going and checking into the facility to give you an idea. And it's for anyone that can find the time to do it. But I guess like we work with a lot of people because of that structure of how it is. We work with a lot of people that... I hate using this word because it gets misconstrued, but like functioning sort of users or drinkers or whatever, because they still need to work. They still need to keep responsibilities happening in their life. They can't check out of their life for a period of time, or they just don't want to, like it's too daunting to kind of go away and do the whole rehab process. So that's what we do. And that's the easiest way to kind of describe it. We work with people all over Australia. If you're in Melbourne, we'll see you at our offices, but it's just as good to do it over video conference call as well so it's awesome I, to this day i still love it i was saying to you like over the years i've had to become conscious of your own uh, we, i've got some staff that work with us and things like that too and you have to become really kind of conscious of your own like self-care when you're working with other people but when mm. you work with other people it's fucking the best as well like mm. when you see people change it's it's so cool Amazing, um, isn't it? yeah. and the other thing to mention that we do that we're really big on that is probably a little bit different if people are interested in it is that we do like gut protocols through the thing with awesome. this lady called Holly Sinclair. So yeah, we really believe in the biochemical 
process that has to kind of occur for everyone and your mind's a part of your body and your body's a part of your mind and it's all a part of your spirit and you can't sort of fix one thing without the other I believe and I think it's kind of madness when you go to rehab and you do all this psychological work and then you go downstairs and eat three Tim Tams and a Boston bun and a sandwich you know what I mean like yeah yeah, yeah. it's it's just inflaming your brain and it's like preventing you from taking and absorbing the most in so really love all that stuff as well and do some of that too so oh that's awesome because it has to be a a holistic thing as well but the gut health is so important often gets overlooked I've had Jules Galloway an amazing naturopath she's talked before on my podcast about gut health and just interviewed her again the other day about sleep but also gut health and yeah the gut health is definitely something worth addressing so and you said you also have counselors other counselors working yep. there within this outreach program as well so it sounds very well staffed with people who really know their shit yeah yeah know what they're doing which is freaking awesome how long does it go for we do eight weeks and six months just depending on where you're at we used to do 12 months but it's kind of just a long course of time people can do a bit longer than six months if they want to but we just start with six months, but eight weeks or six months, yeah. And you work with people from 16 years and up. This is the other thing I wanted to say. This is awesome. So you work a lot with youth. Yeah, we do. We do, people. yeah. yeah. And the reason why we do that is just because like, I don't say this in a fucking egotistical way. <laughs> I, I have tried to create what I would have wanted when I was going through this whole thing when I was 16, you know. So I just try and be who... I needed when I was that age. So that's the reason why we start at that age. Younger than that, we don't do because there's different things at play that developmentally and things like that, that we're not adapt to deal with. But yeah, 16 16 and up. Yeah. Good to recognize that. Is it when you're dealing with those 16 years, 18 to 21 kind of, is it more their parents trying to push them into it? Usually yes, but Mm -hmm. you also will get people that want to change it's just all about framing obviously you don't talk to someone that's 32 who i'm 32 that's why i use that but stereotypically here speaking might be in the stages where they're building a family and so a lot of like the framing and the things and the way that you connect with them and help find that deeper motivation might be through some conversations around that and the values around that and things like that but someone that's 16 to 21 they're starting their life they want to be cool they want to have fun so it's very much around that and showing people how you can have fun without you know substances and improve your life and the things that you're going to get better at from that so it's all it's all framing it's all framing really yeah wow that's brilliant it must be pretty awesome when you actually crack a kid who's parents bought them and they might have been a bit reluctant and you see them come out the other side change that must feel pretty awesome it's really cool it's really cool and it's why don't get me wrong like reducing and stopping your alcohol and drug use is a big part of it but i think the more important part of the whole thing because it's why we're doing all of this is like your improvement in your quality of life right and that's what i think is important to measure for people in terms of like success when you do this has your life gotten better (laughs) yes because And that's what I always say to people as well. Like if you stop drinking, not that you should start drinking again, (laughs) by the way, but if you stop drinking and you're miserable, then we need to change something up because there's a saying in 12-step programs, I don't know, this might be a bit naughty, a bit rude, but if you're having sex and it doesn't feel good, you're not doing it right. And it's kind of like (laughs) the same in this 
process, I reckon. If you're doing it, yeah, there's a period of uncomfortability. Don't get me wrong. But over a period of time, if you're not feeling good and you're not happy and you're not enjoying stuff, like, yeah, we've got to change something up and we're not doing it right. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. And also if you have time off and you re- and you do a bit of work on yourself and you see how good it is, then I was actually talking to someone today who's been doing my course and they're saying, I feel so amazing, blah, blah. But don't get me wrong, I'm probably going to start drinking again. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, yeah, fair enough. I mean, I've got no judgment, whatever. But then I did say I managed to slip in. But how do you, like, you feel really good. You know how you're going to feel if you go back to it. So perhaps you could even just go, all right, well, it feels good. I'll try it for another week. Correct. And then try Correct. it for another week and another week. Yeah. I think when I finished my one year of sobriety, which I promised that I would do, then when I got to the end, I just kept, I knew I didn't want to go back, but I didn't want to say I'm never going to do that again. So yep. I just kept thinking, oh, well, I'll just keep going and see how it goes. And when I've had enough of that, I'll, but and I, I never and did. I, I was the same. I remember I just couldn't fathom not drinking. And then I just said that I would do 12 months. And by the time I got to six months, my life was so good that I just wanted to keep going. Yeah. Yeah. It's so fucking awesome, isn't it? That's what gets us here. Right. So, oh, Jack, you are bloody awesome. Thank you so much. I'll have to get you back on because I've still got so many questions. No worries. We'd love to. Yeah. I want to go into your story a little bit more too. So, but thank you so much. I will put in the show notes, how people can contact you. Sure. But can you just, so your podcast is called Real Drug Talk. Thank you for having me on all those times ago. And- no worries. Oh, and funny story quickly for everyone listening. I don't know if you know, we did like a little, it was about a year ago now. You went viral on TikTok, on our TikTok for a story right. about Castle Maine. And we had all these young, uh, oh, I think they were young people saying, yeah, that's a standard fucking weekend in Castle Maine for me and all this stuff. And I just thought that was hilarious. So do you know what's so funny about that? On the TikTok. <laughs> I know it's like, I'm huge on TikTok, but not on my own TikTok. Yeah. My daughter came to me and she said, I'm from Castle Maine, obviously. And my best friend lives there and her daughter is best friends with my daughter. <laughs> and she's like, <laughs> She said she saw it come on TikTok. She goes, that's Arnie Danny. <laughs> she, was like, she showed my daughter and then my daughter showed me. I'm like, oh, she's my daughter was horrified. Um, oh, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. and that's what we're in the business of, horrifying our children. <laughs> that's right. Thanks. wouldn't be cool if we didn't. Jack, awesome. Thank you so much. And I know you've been talking to my hubby, Ash, about him coming on your show too, which I can't wait to hear that. Awesome. Um, but, yeah, so just brilliant. What you do is freaking awesome. You're amazing and just... Yeah, anyone who's curious or wanting to look into this outreach rehab program, obviously, like I said, you'd be in very skilled and understanding hands. So I think it's beautiful what you're doing. Thanks, Millie, mate. Appreciate it. Thanks, my friend. I'll speak to you soon. Peace. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.